0: Young men and women, instead of spending my time this morning talking about uh, myself or my work, if you have questions about that, I'm sure you'll ask them, what I prefer to do really is to talk about you. And I'm going to be right up front with you young men and women, and I'm going to tell you exactly what I've been thinking about you. On the one hand, I look around this room, and I see young men and women who many people would consider the brightest and the best. I see that on the one hand. And on the other hand, I look and I see issues such as world hunger, apartheid, nuclear proliferation. And I really have to ask myself that if you young men and women do not do something about the killing issues facing us in our society today, to whom can we turn? And again, right up front, When I ask myself that question, I am conscious of the fact that there have been 24 academies of achievement, and the bottom line is right up front, that many of you and your predecessors have ended up doing nothing at all on these critical issues. So then I have to ask myself, what's the difference between the person who is proactive, the person who shapes life, as opposed to the person who's reactive, the person who allows life to change them? What's the difference between the people who have the greatest head start possible, this tremendous education in the fe- freest country, perhaps, in the entire world? What happens to people who sloth into mediocrity as opposed to those people who come to grips in our society touch life without kid gloves on and then moves on to do something about these problems facing our world. I think there are some key characteristics. The first characteristics between the doer and the receiver is the willingness to take a risk. Now I'm going to be right up front with you because you're bright and I'm not going to kid you. You know why people don't take risks? People do not take risks in this society Because 99 out of 100 times, they take a risk and they know if they take it, they're going to fall right straight on their face. Yep, they're going to fail. So they won't take the risk. I suppose the challenge then of the person who is really going to be a change agent is to get used to failure in a sense. Go ahead and take the risk. And then when you get up off that ground and you dust yourself off, Guess what? No longer does the fear of failure own your heart and soul because you've been there, you know what it feels to fail, and it no longer holds you captive. You are a free woman, a free man, and you no longer fear failure. And another quality, I think, is in taking these risks to enjoy it. To love it. You know, I love the circus, and I love those people who climb up there on the tightrope and walk on that tightrope. There they are, on that tension, tension wire. And when they climb up there, ladies and gentlemen, they just don't walk across that tense wire. They dance up there. And that's what a true leader in our society does it well. You take that risk and just don't totter across that line. You dance when you're up there. Which now brings me to the next characteristic of the real change agent and that is reflection. A person capable of reflection, some would call it meditation. Bottom line is that if unless you really think about things, you're never going to know what really is worth risking for, what really is worth putting your life figuratively or literally on the line. That's one of the dangers in our society. We don't reflect. Many of us, including myself, we gobble down our meals. We don't even experience chomping on an apple and savoring it or eating our sausages and thinking about how that tastes. We race from one experience into the next experience without taking stock of what we're doing right now and how that feels and how that sits with us. All of us, all the time, we we see, we look but we don't really see things. I'll give you a classic example. Night after night, we turn on the television set and we see that tragedy in Ethiopia, the world hunger issue. And yes, absolutely, that should speak to our hearts and our minds and our souls and really spur us on to do something about that world hunger issue. But you know what else we see every night when we're looking at that scene? We see a population which is starving to death. But because of hospitality and the culture of hospitality in Ethiopia, those people wait their turn to get the food in deference to their neighbor. Now I ask you, let us suppose there was a famine in Denver and people were starving and the food arrived up here on the stage. Do you really think we in this culture would wait until that, that section and then this section came up? And that's what I mean about, about not just looking, but truly, truly seeing what is going on in the scene. And you have to be reflective in order to know that when you see even the agony of living, there's an ecstasy side of it as well. And only reflection brings you to that. I suppose if I were to wrap up in any one description what I guess I really think the change agents of our society are and what sets them apart from everybody else is the bottom line is they are people of passion, of passion. Let me tell you about one of my favorite plays by Patty Shafesky called Gideon. Uh, some of you, perhaps the Bible buffs here who really study the Bible, know that Gideon was an Old Testament uh, character who led the Israelites to freedom. Now, in Paddy Shefesky's play, he portrays Gideon as sort of the Rodney Dangerfield of his day, like he ain't got no respect, he's kind of a dumpy character. So one day Gideon is out walking and God appears to Gideon and says, Gideon, I am choosing you to lead the chosen people. And Gideon says, hey, Lord, there must be some mistake about all this. Uh, You don't mean me. Uh, Look at me. Uh, I'm not even a good athlete. Why don't you pick Samuel? At least he got respect. I ain't got no respect. And God says, no, Gideon, it's you. And then they say, well, wait a minute. No, why don't you pick Aaron? At least Aaron's a ladies' man. The women will follow him, but the women don't even like me. And God says, no, Gideon, I am choosing you because you are a man of passion, and only a man of passion ever sees any issue through to the end. Young men and women make no doubt about it. Only the woman and the man of passion ever, ever sees anything through to the end. So what is good about these types of gatherings certainly is to applaud you for your accomplishments. But what it's also about is an opportunity for each and every one of us to keep alive that fire in the belly that each and every one of us must have. So the real challenge for you this weekend is not just what you have done, but whether or not you truly will be a man and a woman of passion and have a passion for justice and integrity and truth. So on behalf of the adult population that's here, I do come and I praise you and I applaud you for everything that you've done. But please, on behalf of this society and this globe, don't let let the applause for you end this weekend. Go out there in this society with passion in that blood for the truth. Thank you. And the first part's very simple. Are you still a nun? That is a very, no, I am not. Okay. Um, second part of the question. How do you feel about Pope John Paul's views about women becoming priests, and about any member of the clergy participating in the political process? Well, obviously, I disagree with uh, both those (laughs) predicates. As some of you know, I was a Sister of Mercy for 23 years, and with the new change in canon law, it left it up to the local bishop to make the determination uh, as to whether or not a nun could run uh, for political office or not. Uh, And the local bishop, in my case, decided that I would have to uh, leave the Sisters of Mercy to do so. Hence, that is why, uh, in fact, I'm not a nun. I want you to know that in uh, my viewpoint, as well as the Sisters of Mercy viewpoint, the order to which I belonged, our challenge for those 23 years was always to respond to the unmet needs. And in Rhode Island, the Attorney General, unlike Attorneys General in other states, we do criminal prosecution, As far as I looked at uh, this matter, I felt that our criminal justice system trashes the rights of victims, so for me, I felt it was a very nun-like thing to do, to become involved in the criminal justice system, to develop now the rights for victims, as opposed to just defendants' rights. But the Church didn't see it that way, and the Church is totally consistent. Not only do they not want women nuns running for political office, they also don't want them ordained, and if any of you did see the 60-minute piece, you know how I feel about that. I really don't think that God really makes decisions on who ought to be ordained uh, on the basis of uh, uh, sex. I really don't think she does. <laughs> All right, sir. Um, in the, your introduction, it was mentioned um, that one of the reasons you chose to run for Attorney General. At- uh, was because you wanted to fight organized crime. And um, I think most of us are aware that organized crime is a very, very powerful force, nevertheless evil, but very powerful in our society. And um, it's very, very hard to uh, get the leaders, uh, even on tax evasion, which most of the time that's the only thing you do. How are you going about Uh, attacking organized crime, Mm -hmm. and have you been successful so far? Mm -hmm. This uh, Wednesday, we sent away the uh, second-highest mob leader in Rhode Island to a 20-year jail sentence, so we are, in fact, making some impact on it. Well, let me be honest with you. Uh, I really believe that we lucked out in that case. We were able to get uh, uh, that organized crime figure on the crime that actually was committed, which was a murder. Ironically, that occurred in 1965, so it was a near miracle 20 years later to finally get that type of disposition on the number two mob man uh, on the East Coast who headquartered out of Rhode Island. The real way to fight organized crime is with a pencil. Yes, yes you put them away through uh, evasion of income tax Uh, 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 That's my firm belief, so it's a real paper trail. And frankly, we we are now trying federally to work with the federal authorities. For far too long, law enforcement has been in a competitive mode. The U.S. Attorney wants the headline, or the local Attorney General wants the headline. And frankly, I say, hey, let's stop fighting ourselves, you know. Put aside the egos, and let's try to work together. And who cares who gets the credit? Let's just put the thugs away. So we are working now uh, very, very, very closely. I meet weekly with the U.S. Attorney's Office. There are four of us on a council. We decide what approaches we're going to take cracking down on organized crime, and also drugs, which is a serious problem. Uh, In our state, we agree to a common cause of action. The intelligence is only shared among the four of us, and then we implement. And we're doing very well so far, but it's it's a great battle. It's a great battle. The bottom line is, I'm not, again, I don't necessarily think we're going to win the war against organized crime, but I have this thing of pride, you see. And when I was a kid growing up, we owned the streets, not the hoodlums. And I can't stand the fact that we're supposed to be the people all cowering out on, you know, oh, we can't go out after dark because these people own our streets. Well, I think we've got to have some pride and reclaim our streets back to us. Uh, right. uh, Sir, sure. how would you re- um, how do you feel about religious institutions like the Catholic Church politicizing their views? Specifically, for example, um, uh, how would you respond to the criticism that the Catholic bishops have no um, have no duty or right to use their religious power in the political arena dealing with nuclear war? I think, first of all, anybody, whether you're uh, so-called uh, identified with a religious denomination or not. You have the right to speak your mind on any issue. That does not bother me, but let me be honest with you. I want to draw the line. What does bother me is when people equate a specific religious belief with what God is thinking on that issue. Uh, You know, one of the biggest concerns I have in our society is when people make that mistake and begin to think that they have all that needs to be known on an issue so that unless you agree with them ideologically, that makes you a bad Christian or a bad person unless you have their viewpoint. And frankly, when I see some of the arguments, and let me be controversial right here now, some of the so-called religious uh, arguments on the name of religion, I think some of the decisions are about the most anti-religious things I can think of. In my state in Pawtucket, for example, we brought up uh, the case to the United States Supreme Court on the nativity scene. And what happened, the argument before the United States Supreme Court from my state was to allow the nativity scene on public property because it was just like part of folklore. It was no different than Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and a Christmas tree. Now, if you really analyze that, I think that is basically a very anti-religious policy once we begin to equate nativity scenes with Rudolph. (laughs) Similarly, and here is the grenade... Let's look at the prayer issue, all right? I I pray. I I obviously have more than a passing interest in religion after 23 years, you know? But when you analyze using a prayer that is so generic that doesn't mean anything to anyone, I say to myself, what can be more basically anti religious when you identify it than a prayer that means nothing to nobody? Okay. So let's look at issues and not just jump on so called bandwagons where the church, you know, is, is, whether it's the Catholic Church or any church, all of a sudden appears as the panacea for everybody. Because I don't think that's so in this pluralistic society. And no one has a corner on truth. I think everyone is in favor of the concept of victims' rights. But I also think it's very difficult to expand the rights of victims without infringing on the rights of the accused. So I'd like to know how you propose. Sure. Let me tell you what we're doing in my state. We have a six-person victim unit. If you got victimized by a crime, we notify you and we let you know who the attorney is who's handling the case and we tell you everything that's going to happen to you in the criminal justice system. We go over your testimony with you so you don't come into court not knowing who you're going to face. We even literally bring you into the courtroom so you can feel physically comfortable. At the time uh, of sentencing, if you wish to address the court Prior to the sentencing, we walk right up with you and you can address the court and tell the judge what you think the impact of the crime has been on you. If you don't want to address the court, we have you fill out a victim impact statement, which now in Rhode Island the judge must read and take into consideration, namely the impact on the crime as well as what uh, the defendant's background is, and that is now a factor in sentencing. At parole time. If the person went to jail, we send you a notice so that if you, in fact, want to uh, uh, be uh, in attendance and let your opinion be known at parole time, we even send a car for you if you don't have transportation so you can address the parole board. Beyond that, uh, effective July 1, we put in what I consider victim-sensitive legislation uh, for children who uh, uh, have been victimized by sexual assault. Right now, we expect a child age six or seven to walk into an adult courtroom, look at 12 strangers whom they've never seen before, look at a judge all dressed in black, sit in a chair that doesn't even fit the child's body, and then eyeball the person who sexually assaulted them. In 85% of the cases, it was a trusted adult, and they're supposed to tell their story for the third time. They did it at grand jury, they did it at bail, and now here they are two to two and a half years later telling the story all over again. So I said to myself, what, was, what did I feel like when I was seven and eight years old? We proposed legislation, and now in Rhode Island, starting July 1, kids' statements can be videotaped. Uh, they can be introduced. The child can now testify through closed-circuit TV. They can sit in a beanbag chair with Captain Kangaroo on the wall. <laughs> The jury gets to see the face of the victim, the defense gets to cross-examine the child, but we've taken the terror of the courtroom away from that child. And for the first time in the country, we passed legislation which gives children a right to a speedy trial and gives senior citizens the right to a speedy trial. Because up until this time, countrywide, only a defendant had that right. So I don't think those rights jeopardize the defendant. What I really think it does is to take away the terror of the courtroom and or uh, the speedy trial and to give the similar right to the victim of crime. Thank you very much.